I think it's really important, even if you're not going to be a writer, to still acknowledge that you have right to creative production. That is not just the domain of people who are like highly specialized and trained to write songs, that you can write songs if you want to write songs. There's nothing that says that you have to stop drawing or or painting after, you know, middle school or high school. Celebrate your capacity to make something out of nothing. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. My name is Ian Williams. I'm an English professor and a writer. As a writer, I write poetry, fiction, and nonfiction with six books right now. And as a professor, I teach mostly poetry courses. I'm at University of Toronto now, but I taught for a while at the UBC Creative Writing Program. So Word Problems, my most recent poetry collection, attempts to write through our moment, which is really hot with moral and ethical issues, and trying to construct those in the dominant mode of our time, which is scientific, (laughs) and see what are the limits of this particular lens. So I try to investigate really thorny and, and complicated problems through a really clean mathematical kind of model. (laughs) And we see just what are the limits of that? One of the starting points for word problems was like, are these problems that we're facing simply a problem of like nomenclature or language? Is the problem the word or is the problem the methodology of how we're talking about it? Why does it seem like we're going nowhere? Is it because our methodology is flawed? And then, you know, I'm a math lover and I'm always sort of borrowing forms and borrowing shapes. <laughs> and so the word problem seemed like, huh, let's, let's try this, right? And not all the poems in the book are these actual word problems, you know, if like Jim is painting a fence and Sally's painting a fence. And if we work together, how quickly will they paint a fence? It's not that kind of thing throughout. But in, I think just about every poem, there's a kind of sticking of language where it becomes a problem in itself and the poems kind of go back and edit or revise themselves or try to. And another way I've described it is like, it's like being in an industrial building with all of the pipes and plumbing and stuff exposed and doing that kind of grammatically. So if we leave the surface of our sentences or the structure of our sentences exposed and really naked so that they're not just um, communicative, but also like structural and functional and supporting, then what can we both like glean about our language and then glean about the content that we're trying to fill into our language? To Mamanque is how the French miss, backward, like car wheels in commercials. You, me, miss. Word every possible, the place wrong in. There are only three. I had a farm in Africa, no, just a friend on the French-Swiss border, who argued the English, I miss you, didn't make any sense. Had? How could you, meaning me, miss me, meaning him? Easy. You, he explained, miss me because we are not together. Who's missing? I wanted to know. You are. You are gone somewhere from me. La Lune. I cannot be missing from myself ever. You are missing from me. And here he clamped a love handle, and that causes me great, how do you say, langoise. 
We are apart now. We never actually met. We Skyped through the cheesy maze of our friendship. He made a joke once when I asked for details. He had a postdoc on breast cancer proteins that he was in charge of terminating the rats by guillotine. That was a joke. Then he quickly explained the real way, an injection, I think. How faint the tune. I could never tell how tall he was or ask correctly in French how high the moon. As long as we're longing, I had a farm in Africa. No, just another friend on the border of Rwanda and the Congo who said, I miss you for Tumamank was a perfect and incorrect translation. Just trust me. Everything makes sense until you have to explain it. Have? You don't say to mem for I love you. Correct. That is very true. But surtout, because I don't love you. See the stars? Comment elles brillent for you? Wait, wait, wait. Not you. Not your words. Not your feeling. I stuck poems up on the wall of my uh, apartment in Vancouver. And it was so that every day I would be able to see the book or see all of the poems that would end up in the book at one glance, right? Instead of turning pages. You know, when you turn things in sequence, they appear for a while and then they disappear. But I wanted the poems to always be present at all times, always. And so things would happen like when I would be putting on my shoes or taking off my coat, I would stand and pause a little bit uh, longer at that wall. It was right at the door. So every time I entered or left, I had to deal with it. I would pause there and, you know, there'd be a pencil on my keyboard nearby and I would just kind of make an adjustment or make a change. Um, and then I would draw a line between this poem and that poem and said, you like, this is a repetition here. You've already dealt with that. That's unnecessary. And then I would like retape the poems and move them so that they could be closer to their friends and whatnot. So a lot of editing happened just by living with the poems and giving them space to exist. And, you know, it's one thing to sort of like write a book and then uh, you kind of put the poems away or you put the book away at the end of the day. Like they're not always there. And there's some value to that kind of compartmentalization. But there's a point in the process, I think, where you have to surrender your life to the work. And so the work takes precedence over the comfort of closure <laughs> so that I can put it away and come back to it later. And for, you know, some time, it's just like, Nope, the work is always here. There's no mental rest. It is always, always before me. And it worked. It works brilliantly. So one of the exercises that I do in my creative writing classes is called a 7-7 seven, seven or 14-14. And those numbers stand in for days. And so I ask students to create a poem every day for seven days and to post it online by midnight. And the purpose of that is to get them to just produce and to write something every day. And I don't grade quality. It's, it's simply about meeting the, meeting the deadline, right? And getting something creative done every day. And there tends to be a rhythm to that exercise, right? The first couple of days, they're super excited about it. And then somewhere in the middle, they have a hard time finding content, right? So they start mining their days, looking for you know fragments of conversation or a line that they read or some ad that stood out. And they start looking at the wor world more intently. Yeah, they try to extract things that might have some kind of poetic ramification later on. So they, how they 
view the world kind of shifts somewhere during that exercise. And towards the end, they get excited again, right? Because they discovered they can make something out of nothing. The extended version of that uh, assignment, the 1414, and I've done it for a month too, right? So like a 30 by 30. But the extended version, uh, I have them produce something in the first week. So a poem a day for the first seven days. And then in the second uh, week, they revise those poems from the first day. So they go back to their material and they engage in like a, a revision process. And that alerts them to the things that they stumble over and the things when they feel like, I don't know how to make this better, but they must make it substantively better or changed or different. And sometimes it's not better, right? Sometimes it's just different. But I do want them to have a, another encounter with the work that they thought had been accomplished, right? How to re-enter work after a stretch of time. I'm the only Black professor some of my students will ever have. Occasionally, they remind me that I'm a novelty. At the beginning of my teaching career, students in my composition class were completing course evaluations around the time of the Great American Boycott of 2006. Immigrants led by Latinx people planned to withdraw from work, school, and commerce on May 1st in protest of proposed reforms to immigration laws. I absented myself from the room as college policy goes, while students completed the evaluations. But from the outside, I could hear them, all white, buzzing in debate over the boycott. By the time I was signaled in, the buzz had grown to a roar, and the students weren't so much debating as trading cliches about immigrants. They seemed to have reached consensus, more or less. One particularly vocal student saw me in the doorway, realized his opportunity, and struck. Dr. Williams, you can come in now. We have your green card ready. What followed was the kind of laughter and wincing that comes when someone gets roasted. Too slow to react, I played the part of a good sport. This class was one of my favorites that semester. The students were frank and open to identifying and interrogating their biases. Yet, in that moment, I felt my status slip away, the way it did whenever I left my role as a professor or writer and became simply a black man in America. Suddenly, the classroom had become a politicized nation, paroled by student officers who were bound in solidarity as Americans. And I, literally stepping in from the outside hallway, had become the immigrant. Later, walking back to my office, I processed that bout of disorientation. Why didn't I defend myself? Why didn't I say at the very least, that joke is inappropriate? Why did I find my resources as Hare Dr. Professor Williams, PhD, bankrupt at that moment? So Disorientation is a collection of 10 essays about race and coming to racial awareness and what it is, what it feels like to be a Black man moving through the world. So I'm interested in like global Blackness and not simply like African-American um, version of Blackness. Yeah. And so what are the, what are the challenges of, of, of being a Black man in the world? And the title word Disorientation actually refers to the effect of like constantly being reminded of race right at every every turn so even when you're innocently and just going about your business and you know shoveling your snow or whatever uh if someone shouts they're like bet you wish you were in cuba or something right and they're like is that like a caribbean reference or it's like is like what's going on in that moment right this constant reminder and so this process of being snapped out of our our present task and where our attention is to being a kind of racialized role. 
in word problems, a lot of the sort of racial energy, well, it's, it's pretty explicit there, but in that kind of poetic way that can feel sometimes off center or, or coded or beneath a layer of language or something. And in disorientation, I just wanted to talk directly to a reader. The nonfiction that I've written in the past, it's small scale, right? But for a reader, and at this point in my life, to write sort of a large scale nonfiction thing where I can see you and I am myself, and we're not in this kind of contract of fiction or, or literature. We are just ourselves. And this book is a medium for us to communicate. I like that mode, right? I really like that mode. And it doesn't stop being art because it's nonfiction and true. It still is shaped and it still is the best way to sort of talk with you and to create space too for the reader to think and respond and how much space do you need. It's been a really uh, sort of pleasant experience, strange word for a book that's so like often gut-wrenching. It's been a really pleasant experience not to perform through speaker or narrator, right, or point of view, and just to write as myself to a reader. So when I was writing Reproduction, Lauren Carter and I were in Calgary, and she's a Winnipeg writer, and we set ourselves a deadline at the end of this month, we're going to be done draft five or whatever it was, and we worked just tirelessly on it, and at the end of it, we printed out our manuscripts and we took our manuscripts to dinner <laughs> at an Irish pub in downtown Calgary, and we sat it on the table, and she had a glass of wine, and we had a good dinner, and I bought a suit that day too, you know, just like celebrated all always a gray suit and it was really great it was not by any stretch the end of reproduction but it was just the closure of a really messy draft and to share it with somebody when you know our celebrations or or achievements are so private as writers the stages of it it's like draft four you tell your partner and they're like great great let's have some lentils but to really sort of mark that occasion with someone who who gets it with a writer who gets it was really special but you know what i'm doing these days so it's not celebration quite, but it's an attempt to recover joy in, in the writing process. And so right now I've gone back to longhand pen and paper, this kind of um, just held up my notebook. Uh, it's right, keep it close to me, pen and paper. And I write longhand by hand every day. And my, my goal is I'm not writing to a market. I'm not writing with a purpose or an intention in mind. I'm writing in the spirit of, you know, the 19-year-old boy who used to take the train home and write on the train and write on the bus without any dream of getting published or without any hope of finding a reader. And it's been just so great to approach the page without a project every day. And so that's what I'm doing these days. These attempts to like recover or to keep your joy alive. Yeah, they're really important, I think, uh, for writers. He stocked shelves at Zeller's. He was a skinny boy who flicked hair out of his eyes. He didn't wear a name tag, a rebel. His shirt was always untucked from his black pants at the back, without a cause. Despite her best efforts at stalking, Heather couldn't predict his shifts, so she had to go to the mall two or three times a day if she wanted to see him and be seen. That day, as Heather and Diane entered the air-conditioned store at Ladies Wear, the skinny stalker was pulling his trolley of abandoned and rejected items toward them. He didn't smile, he didn't nod, but for the first time, Heather felt his eyes flood her in the aisle. 
Heather touched her undercut, sweaty. Sophie B. Hawkins was singing, Damn, I wish I was your lover. And then, when the skinny boy was close enough to smell her, Heather dropped the single most brilliant life line of her life. She turned her pink breath toward his passing head, looked at his belt, and said, Need a hand? It seemed like it happened in slow motion, with close-ups of her lips and his belt, but it happened very quickly. She was passing, she said, need a hand. Need a hand was at once so banal as to be forgettable and so full of insinuation that it could not be. Did she throw cotton panties or lingerie at him? He paused. He was trying to figure out which. His neck tinted. She pulled a sleeve from the cart. Menswear, she said. His jaw mottled red. She tugged the tip of the hose with her thumb. Garden center. His cheeks, his temple, vines of blood climbed his face. It's so, so, so challenging to accrue a good character. I think accrue is the good word for it because it's not like designed, right? Not to work off of like a list of blue eyes, brown hair, this kind of thing, right? But to actually let them whatever the gravitational center is to find that early on. And for someone like army and reproduction, it was the yo, Hey, pretty lady kind of voice there. And then suddenly these, this planet started forming around him, right? The gestures and all of that. And so for characters, like whatever that nucleus is, all of this other stuff will be, be added on. And I think the physical gesture is actually really important In class, I have students, the last assignment for an intro to creative writing class is to write a play, a one-act play, and they write it together. And one of the characters, this is my stipulation, one of the characters has to communicate primarily through gesture or has to be nonverbal in some way. And you should be able to reveal something about character and about their distress without them saying anything. And so for character creation in like fiction too, I feel like there should be a kind of repertoire of gestures when you think about army or edgar for army it's you know or edgar it's you know holding the the forearms instead of like folding the arms you just kind of like embrace the self or cradle the self for skinny boy it's the flicking the hair out of the eyes those little details right that kind of put their personal stamp of how to be in the world and it's embodied it's not simply like a plaid shirt, although those things are telling too. I think it's really important to pay attention to the physical. So one of the things in my very first class, in say like a 300 level class, a poetry class, I will ask students to write an autobiographical poem. This is their way of introducing themselves instead of going around the room and saying, hi, I'm a fourth year major, right? So write an autobiographical poem and your technical challenge So prompts for me come with a kind of technical challenge. Your technical challenge is that there can be no people in your autobiographical poem. So not you, not your mother, no friends, nobody peopling your poem, no pronouns or anything. And so then they've got to figure out how to start and how to tell their story without centering themselves. And so they do it, they figure out the difficulty of it. I give them some starting points if they're really stuck, right? Start with a toy or start with a piece of clothing or, you know, start with a food or, you know, start with an image or an object. And I say that one of the merits of this exercise is the decentering of the the young I, right? And there's also a need to decenter the young you too, right? Whoever that person is. 
And so if you find your poems are really eye heavy, that you know you can't exist in the poem without that subjectivity, that marker of subjectivity present. And so what, how are there like responsible ways of removing the eye? We do the revision exercise too, where now can you remove the eyes from there, right? I'm not obliterating you. I'm not saying you're worthless. I'm not saying any of that in, in doing this. It's partly technical, but it's partly about balance too in the poem. So if you find that you're too present in the poem, how can we restrain and cut back? I'm eliminating completely as an extreme form of it, but this is just to teach you how to sort of pull back from the III. The great thing about introductory, like big, large lecture classes is that you get students who don't plan to be writers in those classes. They're in those classes from the sciences, from business, from all other areas of, of you know, campus life. They already have a, a sort of loose chart for their lives that doesn't center writing, doesn't center that. But I say things to them like, and I taught my last class recently, and I, I say to them, how are you going to go on, right? How are you going to go forward? A really kind of Beckett line um, beyond this class and without the structure. And I suggest to them that even if you're doing something totally unrelated with your life, you have to make a plan for your creative life. We have ambitions for our social lives. You know, people in a very sort of heteronormative way want to get married and have kids and all of that. And they have plans for their professional lives and their personal lives and their physical fitness and all of that. But we so neglect, I think, as a society, plans for our creative life. And this is the antidote, I think, to like consuming. <laughs> like, how do we produce things that don't necessarily need to enter a market? They feed us simply by our, our making of them, right? So the making is the actual uh, reward of it. And so we did this profile exercise where we determined when students are most creative, what they hope to produce, what are their ambitions and all of that. And then they had this kind of chart or plan to go forward first over you know, Christmas break and then into next semester. And then how this might look like for life when you're 40 and working a corporate job. Creativity is not a failure because it's, it's a part of your life rather than all of your life. It can do its work just being part of your life. You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson, in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Aaron McIndoe Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Ian's work, including his essay collection, Disorientation, Being Black in the World. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening.